Shrinkwrap Radio number 857, human rights expert Robert L. Oaken, M.D., on the vicious cycle of homelessness and mental illness. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Robert L. Oaken, MD, is a world-recognized expert on human rights for the mentally disabled. We'll be discussing the dimensions surrounding homelessness and his suggested solutions, as well as his book, Silent Voices, which will be released later this month. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Robert L. Oaken, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. It's nice to be here, David. Well, it's nice to have you here. And you are a world-class expert on human rights, mental health, and homelessness. And uh, maybe you can give us a brief personal history then about how you wound up in this field. And let's start with, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, which is a small suburb outside of New York City. Okay. And um, what was your family environment like? What, what kind of, obviously, you didn't grow up homeless. <laughs> no. Well, my parents were both very uh, progressive politically and okay. uh, very active in various political movements. So I would say politics and social activism and concern. Uh-huh about where people were just part of the the food and drink that I uh, took in as a child. It was yeah. all Yeah, clearly that had a, a, a big impact on, on your uh, on your future. On, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? Did you have an idea? When I grow up, I yeah. want to <laughs> what was that? Well, when I was, I remember clearly when I was about four years old, my teddy bear was always getting sick. <laughs> and oh. I was always rubbing its nose with a Kleenex and trying to trying to bring it back to health. Yeah. And then it lost the plastic eye and I tried to sew it back on. So I was I I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was four years old. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and did you have a doctor in the family already or not? No. So yeah. you were really uh, 
breaking new ground for your family in terms of achievement. Yeah. Yeah, they must have been very proud of you. And uh, so so um, where did you go to school to uh, to get your degrees? Well, I went to a public high school and got involved in writing an alternative school newspaper because because the principal of the school wouldn't allow me to uh, publish a letter to the editor in the regular school newspaper about the segregation uh, that was occurring in the school system in New Rochelle. Yeah, yeah. So So you were a a little bit of a rabble rouser, (laughs) even then, going way back, yeah. And then how about college and and medical school? I went to the the University of Chicago and graduated in uh, three years and then went to medical school there and then uh, uh, did my internship and residency at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Yeah, wow. Those are solid uh, credentials. Well, the second edition of your book, Silent Voices, is coming out later this month. And uh, tell us about that book. And and it's the second edition. So tell us about the structure of the book, because it's a little different, I think. Yeah. Well, the first section of the book is largely about my experiences on the street. So I... I guess this jumps a, a little ahead. I, I decided to spend two years on the street after I left my position as chief of psychiatry at San Francisco General Hospital. Um, and I, were, were you retiring at that point? Was that why you, why you left? Well, I wasn't really retiring, but uh-huh. uh, in that position... I saw a lot of very poor, very disabled, mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered what their lives were actually like, which you couldn't you couldn't really tell it from the from the environment of the hospital. Yeah. So I decided uh, when I left the hospital that I wanted to spend a couple of years on the street. Uh, talking to people who are homeless and mentally ill. That sounds courageous. Uh, you kind of rolled up your sleeves and decided to get your hands dirty, so to speak. Yeah. In, in the real mess of the world. Uh, yeah, so take us through that, um, through well, that experience. Yeah, well, I think the thing that really really precipitated my interest was a kind of almost trivial experience I had. Uh, Shortly after I left my position, I was, I was in San Francisco and I was walking to my car and it was rainy and cold. And I was kind of hurrying to get into the, uh, to the safety of my car. And I saw this little woman huddled up against the cold and the rain on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And 
I just, uh, it, it really touched me in a powerful way. You know, I felt like I had almost deserted her by getting into my car. Yeah. You know, I was going to stay dry and she was going to be wet and cold night after night after night. Yeah. And I just couldn't understand how she could bear it. You know, just unrelenting suffering. So I decided that I would uh, spend time on the streets talking to people who were mentally ill and homeless. And I, I expected that I was going to just be totally blown off by people uh, who I approached. But they didn't do that. They they seemed to welcome the opportunity to talk to me. And they were kind of surprised, I think, that I was interested in them and their stories. Well, I think so many of us, we, we uh, see these people on the streets, unfortunately, more and more now, and um, <clears throat> which we weren't used to seeing for years. And um, and they're growing numbers, and uh, it's a tough thing, I think, for the average person to come to grips with and to figure out how to deal with it. And we would rather just ignore them or not see them, pretend like we don't see them. Well, it's very hard. I find it hard to pretend like I don't see them. I mean, I I also have a therapeutic uh, a background. Uh, like yourself. And uh, so it's hard to turn off that caring. But on the other hand, there are perhaps legitimate fears of uh, they won't want to talk to us. They'll feel intruded upon. Maybe they're crazy. Maybe they'll attack attack us. Um, well, so I, I have to say, you know, just to dispel any idea that I was brave in doing this, I have to tell you, when I first started to approach people, I would spend two hours tracking someone around the around oh. the streets, work, trying to work up the courage. Okay, to, <laughs> I can and, understand that. Yeah, and it wasn't really that I was afraid of them. What I was afraid of was that they would blow me off and think I was weird and just you know, would tell me to get out of their faces. Yeah. Uh, but as I said, they didn't. And I think the other thing that really bothered me was that I I had this worry that I was almost voyeuristically spying into the misery of lives that had been treated so poorly. And you know, so I felt somewhat guilty about that. Yeah, and, yeah, I can understand that. And worried that they would somehow discern that and, you know, not want to talk to me. Yeah. Now, you actually, uh, at some point, did you record these conversations? Yeah. So after I after I started talking to people, I decided that I really wanted to share their stories with a larger audience. And I began asking them if I could record our conversations. 
and uh, and then I was so struck by the the beauty of their faces and the way that life and suffering had engraved their self, themselves mm -hmm. and their faces that I felt I couldn't do this without actually photographing them as as we talked. So, uh, you know, it was it was in the beginning awkward to have this camera between me and the people I was talking to. And I worried that, you know, it would just be too much of an interference. But but both of us very quickly kind of forgot the interference, even though I was photographing them as they talked. I didn't want to stage the photograph. Yeah. I wanted them as they told me about their stories. And, you know, as you could see in the book, a lot of people, a lot of people had tears in their eyes at some point during my conversation with them. Uh, I had expected to find people with hardened shells and, you know, a kind of toughness. And I found the opposite. I found people who were uh, whose suffering was very close to the surface, and they were willing to talk to me about the most personal and often shameful aspect of their lives. Uh, it it was uh, you know that they have the bravery. Did you uh, get some sort of release from them? Or, you know, there might have been that concern that that you needed to have a legally a concern for yeah. having a release. Yeah, I I got a verbal release. I thought that trying to get a, a a written release would just you know enshroud the whole thing and sure legalities and form formalities and so on. But about 70% of the people that I approached were willing to talk to me, uh, knowing that it would become part of a, of a public document. Yeah. Did you, did you know it was going to become a book? Did you tell them that it was going to be in a book? Well, gradually, I decided that I wanted to uh, turn this into a book because that would be the way I could share their stories uh, with a with a public audience. So at the point that I began uh, photographing and recording them, I knew that I wanted to turn this into a book. And so I asked them. Yeah, yeah. And it was surprising that they were willing to participate in this. Uh, and I think I think there were many reasons for that. What one was that most of these people had been just ignored as children and grew up feeling kind of invisible. Mm. So the idea that somebody really wanted to hear them and see them, I think uh, encouraged them to to talk to me and participate in this. But I think another reason was that, you know, they, they really wanted to leave a mark on the world. Yeah. And they, 
they wanted to do good and they wanted to they wanted to know that when they died that their footprints would still be in the sand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so now you're bringing out a second edition uh when when was it that you did this this experiment or experience 2014 was when I well 2010 is when I got when I uh, started started doing it on the streets and the first edition was published in 2014 but the first edition was primarily it, it, it had three three parts to it one part was my experiences on the street meeting with these people and what I learned from them. Uh, because I was also very interested in how they managed uh, and what the subjective experience of homelessness was like, not just the physicality of the experience, but what the emotional impact of it was. I wanted to know what their joys were, what their sorrows were, what their regrets were, how they spent their, you know, so much empty time on the street. So. All of that was in the first section of the book. The second section, which was the primary uh, primary part of the book, were f- photographs and first-person narratives that I had recorded uh, of people uh, that I met, about 40 or 45 people. So the second section of the book consists of uh, photographs, and first-person stories. Uh, the third part of the book was very small. It was about causes and solutions to homelessness. And I, I think I was kind of worn out by the time I finished <laughs> the first edition. Yeah. So after a couple of years passed, and you know, last fall, I decided to expand that third section uh, and really delve into the causes and uh, solutions uh, for homelessness. Yeah, yeah. The second edition. Yes, so that was the motivation for the second edition. And and who's your target audience? As you you think about the people who are going to spend money to buy this book, well, on a topic that many people want to avoid. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I I'm never crazy about preaching to the choir. So the for me the best audience would be people who avert their eyes when they pass these people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that group of people that I want to help see homeless, mentally ill people in a different way. Because let's face it, we we not only avoid them, we're scared of them, we right. stigmatize them, and we blame them for their homelessness and their poverty and their mental illness. I mean, the truth is, the reason that this uh, problem has not been solved is that we we basically despise this group of people. 
and that may seem like an exaggeration, but but it's not. No, I don't think it is either. I mean, we have historical records in novels and 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 such, you know, uh, and f- from other cultures. I think one of the shocking things is that this was for a long time was considered to be a problem in places like India, Bangladesh, etc. Right. Other other places, other people's problems, and uh, and we could feel a bit superior that oh thank goodness it's over there and it's not here but somehow the situation has evolved or you know i sort of fear that we're in a in a in a depression really not just a recession but i think we're in an economic depression that's maybe global <clears throat> you can hear my <laughs> i have a certain amount of hopelessness around all this um so it's been something even in Sonoma County. I live not far away from you. It turns out you're in in Napa County, and I'm in Sonoma County. And I've hung out in San Francisco a lot in the earlier days. And uh, so to see the growth of this over time has has just been shocking. You know that okay now I see in my in downtown Santa Rosa there are tents along the road. And, and, you know, lean-tos and all, and you wonder, well, how does the city allow this? But on the other hand, where are these people supposed to go? What are they going to do? So uh, take, take us through some of these thorny issues. And uh, I gather you haven't really totally given up yourself. No. Uh, I have a strong conviction that when enough people decide that government needs to solve this problem, that they will push government into doing it, and and not before. So it's it's the reason that I wrote the book because I'm you know I I want to spread the word about these people. Uh, yeah and try to humanize them for the public so right. that they won't be averting their eyes and blaming them and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's very easy, David, to, to see the problem as primarily one of individual failure. Uh, and there's no question that individual factors play a huge role in creating the problem, uh, you know, most of these people were abused and neglected and damaged in other ways as children. And, you know, as they got a little older, not too much older, they they turned to drugs to, uh, to try to soften the pain of these early experiences. And they then, fell behind in school and uh, entered adulthood with almost no employable skills and without the capacity and the abilities to function in, in the normal world. So there's no question that 
there are individual factors. I wouldn't call them failures. I would just say factors. And after all, a lot of these people who became mentally ill were predisposed uh, even before they were born, you know, that they had some genetic predisposition to serious mental illness. So, you know, most of these people just never had a fighting chance at a life. So, and when they, you know, when they finally reached adulthood, all it took was the smallest little reverse in their lives. You know, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, you know, some disappointment, uh, something to push them uh, into the streets. And yeah. that's, what, that's what happened. But what's, I think, even more important are the systemic or structural factors sure. that compound these individual factors that lead to what we see on the streets. And, you know, some of the factors that are just never talked about uh, are the values of American society. Uh, and let's face it, we, um, we live in a society that believes that people should be able to keep most of what they earn. And this view is deeply embedded in our consciousness as a nation. And we've developed an almost godlike idealization of independence, self-reliance, and productivity. But the downside of this is that we're intolerant of those who lack these capacities and we're highly ambivalent about helping them. Uh, in fact, the people who need help most, we despise the most and we're least likely to help. Uh, and I would say this idealization of individualism uh, has too often led to a lack of, of community spirit. And this, I would say, is expressed in our taxation policies, which are largely responsible for the huge disparities in wealth in this country, which touches on the, the, the points you were making a few minutes ago about the fact that you know, scratch the surface and part of our society looks like a third world country. Um, you know, we never really, in, in discussions of homelessness, I think we, we never really talk about these underlying values and the fact that the top 1% of United States household owns more than 15 times more wealth than the bottom 50 percent combined and this concentration of wealth has led to the existence of a group of people at the bottom who have almost nothing and homeless people are perhaps the most extreme and visual casualties of this vastly unequal distribution of wealth although the causal connection between the two is conveniently ignored. Uh, you know, while we've come to accept and justify this situation as almost the natural order of things, the fact is that there's nothing natural about it. 
It's the result of unfettered market forces. And it's supported, as I said before, about supported by both our taxation policies and unfettered market forces. Uh, the taxation policies allow a small group of people to retain pretty much most of what they earn. And the estate tax provisions allows them to perpetuate their extreme wealth into the next generation, guaranteeing that their descendants maintain this advantage through no efforts or talents of their own often. The fantasy that people in this society have equal opportunity can be seen as just that. It's a fantasy. And the fact is that relatively few people begin in front of the starting line and a large number of people begin behind it. If we truly believed in equal opportunity, we would create, we would create ways to level the playing field when in fact we do the opposite and we've stacked the deck of opportunity against those at the bottom right from the get-go. And the shadow side of this and the way we've perpetuated it is that people who've been born into poverty through no fault of their own, who begin life behind the starting line, have little chance of acquiring wealth during their lifetimes and really have nothing but poverty to pass on to their descendants. So equal opportunity is just a fantasy. Um, and homeless mentally ill people are arguably trapped on the lowest rung of this steep economic ladder that has its feet virtually underground. When we pass them by, we conveniently ignore the inequalities that they faced and instead blame them for their poverty and their symptoms, allowing us to justify our re refusal to help them. And since housing in the society is considered a privilege, not a right, the people mm -hmm. who have no housing have little chance of ever getting it. Wow, yeah. Yeah, just looking at the uh, the rising cost of living, <laughs> I think many people are getting edged out. They never thought they would get edged out. The cost of housing you know, in California, going up and up and up is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And and because the cost of housing in contrast to people's income has gone so far up, homelessness has risen and risen and risen, and it keeps rising. In the last several years, it's gotten it's gotten worse, not better. Right. And government right. is doing very little to uh, you know to change this situation. Um, very very little, despite the hand wringing of politicians. You know, when you look at how the money is spent, when you follow the when you follow the dollar. You can see what we really 
care about in this society and who we don't care about. So we abandon these people, but we keep wringing our hands about it. Ain't it terrible? Ain't it terrible? Yeah. Well, we really believed it was terrible. We would make our governments create uh, economic policies that solved this problem because, David, this is a totally solvable problem. I mean, the idea that it's just impossible is absurd. I mean, you look at other Western democracies, for example, there's not anywhere near as much homelessness as there is in this society, both because their tax policies are different and because housing is considered a human right, not a privilege. So I gather what you what you're advocating for the average citizen is to become more politically active and to put pressure on government bodies and to to expand their own thinking to to embrace the the ideas that you're talking about to move away from any sense of blame of the victims yeah yeah and and to come from a place of compassion yeah but also righteous righteous anger yeah. To change to change the situation. Yeah. You know, some people have said to me, well, look, why don't these people just get a job for God's sakes? You know, right. why do they why should we have to help them? They should just pick themselves up, you know, pull their self, pull, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and uh, and get themselves off the street. But the fact is they don't have boots and they don't have straps. So <laughs> how are they going to do that? Yeah, and yeah. anyone, you know, when someone says to me, well, why don't they just get a job? I say to them, okay, think about it. You know, if you were in rags, dragging a cart around, yeah. you know, smelly, dirty, unwashed, and with no phone and no address to even tell a prospective employer where to contact you. I mean, how are you going to get a job? It's a, it's totally ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Absurd. It's an absurd and convenient fantasy that allows us to feel okay about the fact that we hate these people and don't want to help them. Uh, that's that's a strongly persuasive uh, bottom line there, Bob. Um, it's probably a, a good wrap-up. Is there anything more that you want to say to wrap up this conversation? Well, there's this one, this one thing that I just want to mention, which I experienced when I was talking to these people. You know, I know it sounds I'm sorry. I know it sounds irrational, but but I often felt so close to the people that I talked to. Yeah. And I felt like had the 
had the deck of cards been distributed differently, I could have been. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who was pushing a card around the street, and they could be the one that was interviewing me. Yeah, I think I've had a deep fear of that, actually, uh, you know, yeah. uh, a sort of people have tried to persuade me in an irrational fear of poverty, but uh, it's not, you're only just uh, a, a few steps away, if, if that much. And it's luck. It's luck. Right. So who of us got the, got the genes that led to, you know, uh, you know, a healthy life and, a childhood with parents, you know, who loved us and who listened to us and supported right. us on the one side and on the other. Well, yeah. as you know, we haven't discussed the, there's a huge political divide right now, right, in the country. And and I think, you know, on the, the extreme can be characterized by the kind of person that you're saying, oh, they should just find a job. <clears throat> um, but even, yeah, um, that's very true. Even looking at the amount of affordable housing in society, I mean, there's just not enough, not anywhere near enough affordable housing so that people who are the most fragile and the most vulnerable are always going to be the ones that are left behind that don't have it. You know, it's a little like musical chairs, you know, when the, but there's not enough chairs. And when the music stops, the question is who's yeah. going to be without a chair? Well, if you yeah. don't have enough chairs, somebody is going to be standing. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately in this society, it's a lot of people are standing. <clears throat> I don't, we have adult kids, and fortunately, our adult kids seem to be doing okay. But I know that um, because they've had the benefits that we were able to, you know, to pass on in terms of education and and good home life and all of that. <clears throat> but there are so many kids in this county, and the county where you live, that will not be able to live, to afford to live where they grew up. It was always assumed that you, you know, if you grew up somewhere, yeah, you could just hang out there and you'd get a job and, yeah. uh, and your, your lineage would just be able to continue. But that seems to be radically shifting. Yeah. Social mobility, which, which really was responsible for a lot of this society's health, I would say, has really diminished over the last 50 years. Yeah. Um, well, Bob, I really want to thank you for, uh, for your compassion and your passion and compassion and the fine example that you're setting for all of us and and your uh, ins inspiring will to action. So uh, thank you for sharing your message with us. 
Once again, I marvel at my good fortune to be able to meet and speak with someone of the caliber of my recent guest, Robert L. Oaken, M.D. It's wonderful not only to be able to speak to him, but also to experience the real human connection between us. It was clear that there was a moment when he was too tearful to keep speaking. How precious and rare to encounter that sort of compassion and sense of injustice in our treatment of the unhoused. He may have been just a tad embarrassed in that moment, but I experienced it as rare and precious. Here's someone who has been on the barricades for social justice all his life, a fully trained and certified psychiatrist, no less, and yet he's managed to keep his heart and professional frustration accessible. For me, this is the major takeaway from our conversation. If, like me, you are someone who feels compassion and simultaneous fear and helplessness as you walk by the growing numbers of the unhoused across our land, embarrassed and trying not to notice them, you really need to get yourself a copy of his remarkable book, Silent Voices, which not only has painfully beautiful photos of street people and transcripts of their revealing conversations with him, but goes on to speak about the facts of the dreadful situation and suggestions for what you, as a citizen, can do to help build the collective will to do what needs to be done. He will persuade you that it is, is essentially a political problem that can be solved by changes in taxation and legal policies. Look for the second edition of this important book, which will be released later this month. Again, the title is Silent Voices by Robert L. Oaken, MD. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Toko. Uh, I've been listening to Shrinkwrap Radio for quite some time now and have really enjoyed listening uh, to the interviews. I decided to support Shrinkwrap Radio for a number of reasons. Um, I came across the radio podcast because I was very interested uh, in Jungian psychology and found many of the interviews with Jungian analysts particularly helpful uh, in explaining uh, the concepts of Jungian psychology in both theoretical and practical terms. I'm now studying for a master's degree in Jungian and post-Jungian studies here in the UK and will go on to train as a Jungian analyst. And so listening to podcasts has become even more helpful, particularly because I don't have a, a clinical background and therefore it's been you know, really insightful to listen to and learn more about the clinical applications of our therapeutic and analytical work. So thank you very much, David, for the podcast, and I hope there'll be plenty more interviews to come. Thank you, Nicholas Toko, preparing to become a Jungian analyst there in the UK. I'm so glad you were able to find content on Shrinkwrap Radio that supports you on that journey. Thanks for your financial support and for encouraging others to do likewise. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest Robert L. Oaken, MD, for discussing your important human rights work and advocacy for the homeless, as well as your remarkable book, Silent Voices. Next week, I will be speaking with Paul Corona, MD, about his book, The Corona Project, in which he explores alternatives to traditional psychiatric treatment. Until then, 
This is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.